Okay, we've been discussing the greater discourse of advice to Rahula. That's the Maha Rahula Bhagavad And in the Sutta, the Buddha is explaining various meditation subjects to his son and the young bhikkhu Rahula. And first he had taught him the contemplation of anatta, the contemplation of non-self in regard especially to the body, but in general to the five aggregates. Then he teaches him a variety of meditation subjects, including the four Brahmaviharas, the meditation on foulness, and the perception of impermanence. And if you remember at the very begin at the very early point in the discourse, when Rahula is sitting cross-legged under the tree, then <laughs> the Venerable Sariputta walks by and tells him that he should practice anapanasati, mindfulness on breathing. And he says that mindfulness of breathing, if it's practiced and developed and cultivated, then it will be of great benefit and of great and the evening the Venerable Rahula comes to the Buddha and asks him how mindfulness of breathing should be practiced so that it will be of great benefit and great fruit, great fruit. But the Buddha doesn't answer his question directly, but he instead explains these various other meditation subjects. And now that he has gone through all the other subjects, at the, in the last part of the discourse, he comes to mindfulness of breathing. And I think the reason why the Buddha has put mindfulness of breathing towards the end of the sutta is because he must have seen that in order for Rahula to be able to take up this meditation subject in a way that would be beneficial and fruitful for him, he would first need instruction in the other meditation subjects. I think the other meditation subjects might be, they might be considered that they're ways of preparing the mind for Anapanasati. Sometimes the Buddha teaches Anapanasati as the root or basic meditation subject. For example, in the Satipatthana Sutta, when the Buddha is explaining the four foundations of mindfulness, the very first subject that he explains is Anapanasati. And I think within the context of the Satipatthana system, Anapanasati provides the basis or foundation for that entire system of practice. But if one tries to practice Anapanasati, <laughs> though it seems to be very, very simple, but because it's so simple, it's a very slippery and difficult object to concentrate on. And so if the mind is not really grounded or prepared for Anapanasati, then the Buddha sometimes teaches other meditation subjects as a way for 
as a way of removing the grosser defilements in order to make anapanasati more effective. In particular, the Buddha might, might teach the Brahma-vihara meditations, or especially metta-bhavana, as a way of removing the grosser forms of ill-will, anger, cruelty, and other aggressive thoughts. And he will teach the Asubha-bhavana, the meditation on the repulsive or impure nature of the body as a way of calming down sensual thoughts, lustful thoughts. And then when these coarser forms of lust and aversion have been controlled and are held in suspension, then the Buddha will teach Anapanasati in its full course of development as a way leading directly to the highest goal. And so I think here in the case of Rahula, who was a young man, I can imagine that he must have been, since in royal descent, he must have been quite handsome and quite grand in his bearings. And so he would tend to give rise to thoughts of maybe sensual desire, pride because of his family lineage and his, the stature of his father, the Samasambhuta. And maybe because he came from the Kshatriya lineage, he might have looked down at other bhikkhus. And so the Buddha would have taught him <coughs> metta-bhavana and karuna-bhavana. And once his mind is grounded in these meditation subjects, then it is properly prepared for anapanasati. And now the Buddha in this sutta is going to show the entire unfolding of anapanasati. Not like in the Satipatthana Sutta, where he shows only the first portion of Anapanasati. And so the Buddha begins here with our paragraph number 25. First by showing the, I call the preliminaries to Anapanasati. Here Rahula, a bhikkhu, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut or we can say even an empty room, any kind of quiet, secluded place, sits down. That is because Anapanasati is a meditation subject which should be practiced in the sitting posture. So he sits down folds his legs crosswise, that is either into full lotus, half lotus, or any type of cross-legged position which supports the body, sets his body erect, upright, so that the spine is like, they say like a column of coins 
one on top of another, and he establishes mindfulness in front of him. That is, the place for setting up the mindfulness should be in front of the face, usually either at the nostrils, the tip of the nostrils, or at the upper lip, wherever one feels the contact of the breath coming in and out of the nostrils. And then, ever mindful, he breathes in, mindful, he breathes out. Okay, all of this is just the preliminary. Now, in this sutta, the Buddha will explain mindfulness of breathing in terms of four tetrads. What is a tetrad? A tetrad means a group of four. So that, so that means that we have mindfulness of breathing explained in 16 aspects. And those 16 aspects are grouped together into four groups. One shouldn't understand the 16 aspects as 16 steps in the sense that one has to go through one after another and that one drops one step when one comes to the next but they are 16 different aspects which yet it do involve a certain gradual development. Okay, now the first tetrad is explained in paragraph 26. Here the Buddha says, breathing in long the bhikkhu or the meditator understands, I breathe in long, or breathing out long, he understands, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he understands, I breathe in short, or breathing out short, he understands, I breathe out short. And so in this phase of practice, the task of the meditator is just to keep the mind focused on the breath at the point of contact, noticing whether the breath is an in-breath or an out-breath, and noticing whether it is short or long. In the commentarial tradition, a method is developed of first counting the breaths, which is useful just as a means for keeping the mind from wandering, keeping the mind on the breath. It gives the, the mind a certain task to achieve so the mind cannot go wandering. But once the mind is able to fix on the breath with some success and not get driven away by stray thoughts, then, according to the method of the sutta, one just keeps the awareness or the attention set up on the breath, at the nostrils or the upper lip, noticing whether it is in-breath or out-breath, and whether it is long or short. Even though first the Buddha mentions long breath, then second short breath, 
one shouldn't think that this is a sequence and first one begins deliberately breathing in and out long and then is the second step one deliberately shortens the breath in order to have a short in-breath and out-breath. But rather, one just notices the length of the breath, whether long or short. And sometimes there will be long breaths, sometimes there will be short breaths, sometimes even <laughs> middle-length breaths. Then one can just decide whether to count it as long or short. Okay, so this is the initial two aspects of mindfulness of breathing, the purpose of which is to train the mind to keep the awareness fixed and focused on the breath. <coughs> Now the third aspect in the Pali reads Sabakaya Pati Sanvedi Asasamiti Pajanati Asikati Sabakaya Pati Sanvedi Pasasi Samiti Sikati And here we should notice first that the Buddha changes the verb from pajanati, which means to know, to understand, to sikati, which means to train. And that's quite significant. The Buddha doesn't change words for nothing, just arbitrarily. But he changes this verb because this is now a particular task, a kind of training that the meditator has to set up for himself even with each breath. And the task here, as explained in, for example, the Visuddhimagga and the commentaries, is to be aware of the entire in-breath and out-breath through every one of its phases. And to make this uh, easier to practice, the commentaries say that for each in-breath and for each out-breath, there are three phases to be attended to. The three phases are the beginning, then the middle portion, and Finally, the end portion. <coughs> and so, for the in-breath, the beginning is just when one starts to take the air in, just when the air starts to come in through the nostrils. Then the entire course of that in-breath is the middle. And then, just when that in-breath is drawing to a close, when it's coming, when the lungs are full with the air, and when it's about to stop the in-breath, that is the end portion. Then there comes a little momentary switch, turnover, when one changes from the in-breath to the out-breath. 
then when one starts to push the air out, that is the beginning step of the out-breath, then there comes that extended middle portion when one is breathing out, 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 and then just before one is about to end the out-breath comes the end portion. And then there comes a little momentary turnover, then the in-breath, then the out-breath again. And so the task of training in this third step is to be aware of each of these portions of the in-breath and the out-breath. When breathing in, be aware, starting to st taking that in-breath. As the air is coming in, be aware of the middle portion, middle portion. Then when one is about to stop the in-breath, be aware of the end. Then when one is breathing out, aware of beginning, then middle, then end. And as one is practicing in this way, after a few turns, then one will be thick, drawing the breath in, in. Then <laughs> when one comes to the awareness, suddenly one is breathing out in the middle. <laughs> and where has the mind been from the, <laughs> the middle portion of the in-breath to the middle portion of the out-breath, wandering away someplace. <laughs> to the, what happened yesterday, what might happen tonight, what might happen tomorrow. And so when one becomes aware of that, then one has to bring the mind back first just to in, out, in, out. And then as the concentration builds up again, back to these three phases as a way of following the entire breath in and out. <clears throat> and as one goes on attending to the breathing with this awareness and with understanding or clear comprehension, then the body becomes more and more subtle and the breathing becomes quieter and quieter, more and more tranquil or calm. And so this brings us to the fourth aspect of this awareness, or this mindfulness of breathing, which is he trains us, I shall breathe in tranquilizing or calming the bodily formation, kaya He trains thus, I shall breathe out tranquilizing the bodily formation. Now according to the explanation in the commentaries of the Sudhimagga, what is meant by the bodily formation here, the Kaya Sankara, is just the in and out breath itself. And in fact, this 
isn't only the commentary, but also in some suttas, the Buddha does say that the bodily formation, kaya sankara, is asasa pasasa, in and out breathing. Now the wording of the sutta, I shall breathe in tranquilizing the body, the bodily formation. I shall breathe out tranquilizing the bodily formation. If one just reads the words, it gives the impression that one is making a deliberate effort to slow down or to quiet down the in and out breathing. But actually the teachers explain that one should not make a deliberate effort to calm down the breathing. But one just, as one is mindful of breathing in and out, the bodily formation, the breathing, naturally becomes calm and quiet. And when it calms down and becomes quiet, then one should just be aware that it is quieting down and becoming tranquil. But one should not make a deliberate attempt to calm down the bodily formation of the breathing. If one does make a deliberate attempt to calm it down, then the mind will become restless. But just by keeping the attention fixed on the breathing and following the entire breath in and out, the breathing naturally becomes calm and tranquil. And so in this fourth step, when the breathing does become tranquil, then one notices that the breathing is becoming tranquil, becoming calm. Okay, and that completes the first tetrad on mindfulness of breathing. And this tetrad, according to the method of Satipatthana, is grouped together under the heading of contemplation of the body. That's what has, that's what unites all of these four steps. Okay, now comes the, the next tetrad, which is concerned with the contemplation of feeling, of Vedana. So in fact, it has a somewhat <coughs> wider scope than that. And the first aspect of this, I shall breathe in experiencing happiness or actually, I prefer now to use the rendering joy or rapture. Happiness is sometimes used for sukha, but this is piti, priti. Rapture, joy. So I shall breathe in experiencing rapture or joy. I shall breathe out experiencing joy. And the second 
I shall breathe in experiencing sukha, pleasure or happiness, we could say. I shall breathe out experiencing pleasure. Now, we should understand here that this second tetrad, the contemplation of feeling, is not something that necessarily follows the contemplation of the body. It's not that one goes through all four tetrads, uh, I'm sorry, that one goes through all four aspects of the body tetrad, then one completes that and one starts contemplation of the feeling tetrad. But as one is contemplating the in and out breathing, even as one is attending to the touch sensation at the nostrils as the breath comes in and out, then there will arise as the mind settles down and becomes concentrated, there will arise this experience of Sometimes piti is prominent, this joy, elation, rapture. And sometimes this sukha is prominent, the pleasure or bliss or happiness. And when this arises, when these arise, then one attends to them and remains aware of them or notes them as one is breathing in and out. <clears throat> and this can happen, but first we should explain briefly the relationship of joy and pleasure. The two are very similar and are often closely associated, but the difference is that Joy is what we call a mental formation, or it's a, um, it belongs to the Sankara Kanda. Whereas pleasure, Sukha, belongs to the Vedana Kanda. And also, joy is a somewhat coarser state. It's a more, a little more disturbing state. Whereas pleasure, is a more refined or subtler state. They compared the relationship, it's compared in the uh, commentaries, that joy is like if you're traveling through a desert and you're very thirsty and hot, and then you meet somebody on the road who tells you that there is a refreshment stand a little way, about a mile ahead, then you think, now I can get a refreshing drink, and you feel some kind of elation and happy anticipation. That is like piti. Then when you are in the refreshment stand, and you're drinking quietly, and your thirst is allayed, that is like sukha, like pleasure.
Okay, and so these two are very closely associated, but because joy is a coarser mental state, joy can come to an end while pleasure will continue. That is in the third meditative absorption or jhana. And now in the actual course of practice, this happiness or this joy and the pleasure can arise even in the early stages when one is just contemplating the in and out breath. And so if they arise and become very prominent, then one should just note them and experience them. Experience the joy, experience the pleasure or happiness. But the two become factors in the meditative absorption, the jhanas. And so this second tetrad can apply especially to a meditator who has entered the lower jhanas in which joy and happiness are present. So when the meditator has entered the first jhana and the second jhana, then there will be both joy and pleasure. If he has entered the third jhana, then there will be just pleasure, but no joy. It's a more refined pleasure, so subtle that it is beyond joy. And so we could take these two steps, these two aspects of the second tetrad, to refer particularly to the meditator in the lower three jhanas. But it is not only when practicing in the jhanas that joy and pleasure arise, but also when one is practicing anapanasati as a subject of vipassana meditation, insight meditation, as the mind becomes concentrated on the in and out breathing and one begins to observe the formations, the sankharas arising and passing away, arising and passing away, then in that case too there arises joy and pleasure. And when these joy and pleasure becomes very prominent in the course of insight meditation, then too one notices them and contemplates them. Also one can turn away from the in and out breath and notice that these states of joy and pleasure also are arising and pass away. Okay, the third aspect of this contemplation of feeling is expressed here 
I shall breathe in experiencing the mental formation. I shall breathe out experiencing the mental formation. What is called the mental formation here is in Pali, it's called Chitta Sankara. And the Buddha has explained in some other suttas that the Chitta Sankara is perception and feeling. But I think one might take Chitta Sankara in a more general sense perhaps as the various factors of mind. Well, actually I think here one, one should take it as, me- <laughs> I'm sorry, as meaning feeling because this belongs to the contemplation of feeling. So I think this aspect of experiencing the mental formation means that as one goes on contemplating the in and out breath, at a certain point one turns the mind just to contemplate the feelings that are arising from moment to moment in the mind. While the awareness of in and out breathing remains in the background. There's a certain, what you might call a subliminal awareness continuing of the in and out breath. But the attention is no longer fixed primarily upon the touch sensation of the in and out breath, but rather the focus of the attention is on the feelings. One is observing the feelings. And then in the fourth step, or fourth aspect of this tetrad, I shall breathe in tranquilizing the mental formation. I shall breathe out tranquilizing the mental formation. And here it's explained that one should not make a deliberate effort to try to tranquilize or calm down the feelings. But as one proceeds with the awareness of of breathing, as one proceeds observing the feelings arising and passing, then naturally the feelings in the mind become more and more tranquil. That is, the at the in the earlier phases they will calm this joy and pleasure together, maybe of a rather coarse nature, as the mind starts to get concentrated and purified, then there will come this very intense piti, even as felt as though it were shaking the body, and very ecstatic states of bliss and happiness. But as and when these states of ecstatic bliss and happiness come, then they'll throw the mind off balance. But as the mind goes on attending to the in and out breathing, then these grosser types of feelings subside and there remains this very subtle pleasant feeling and then even that pleasant feeling will give way to 
upeka vedana, to equanimous feeling. Okay, now we'll come to the third tetrad. Okay, the fourth tetrad is considered to be within the Satipatthana system to be contemplation of mind. And here the first aspect is experiencing the mind. Chitta pati sangvedi asasamiti pasikati. Chitta pati sangvedi pasasi samiti sikati. That is, here one focuses the attention or the awareness on the state of mind itself. And as I said before, in the case of contemplation of feeling, here too, one shouldn't think that this third aspect, the contemplation of mind, is something that comes after one finishes contemplation of body and contemplation of feeling. But in the process of observing the in and out breathing, even at the nostrils as one is following the breath in and out, in and out, certain states of mind will arise, sometimes wholesome states, unwholesome states. When that happens, one just attends to the state of mind and notices that state of mind. And this is experiencing the mind. As the Sati, according to the Satipatthana Sutta, sometimes there'll be a state of mind with lust or desire, sometimes free from lust or desire, sometimes an angry, hateful state of mind, a state of mind free from anger, a deluded state, undeluded state. Whatever state of mind it is, one just attends briefly to that state of mind, then one brings the mind back to the in and out breathing. Okay, that is the first aspect. And now the second aspect, it seems like, if you read the text, that one is making a deliberate effort to gladden the mind. But actually the effort is just to keep the awareness fixed on the in and out breathing. But as one is aware of the in and out breathing, then sometimes this quality of gladness or pamoja in Pali arises. And when this arises, then one should just notice it or observe it. This pamoja is actually very similar to piti, but here one is attending to the mind itself rather than to that quality of piti. One notices that the mind is becoming glad, happy, joyful because of this practice of attending to the breathing, purifying the defilements, 
and liberating the mind from its oppression by these defilements. And so this quality of gladness and joy arise. And here the mindfulness of breathing might subside into the background and the attention focuses on that joyful mind, that gladdened mind. Then the third phase is also similar. Here it's not a deliberate effort of trying to force the mind to be concentrated, but one just lets the mind remain aware of the in and out breathing, and as the mind settles on the breath, then it becomes concentrated. And when the mind becomes concentrated, then one knows and attends to the mind becoming concentrated. One breathes in, aware that the mind is becoming concentrated. One breathes out, aware that the mind is becoming concentrated. And then the fourth aspect is I shall breathe in, liberating the mind. I shall breathe out, liberating the mind. And this means not really the final liberation of our hardship, but just when any kind of defilement arises in the mind, one just lets that defilement go by bringing the mind back to the in and out breathing. This is called a kind of temporary liberation of mind through the force or power of samadhi, a deepened concentration. Because in these first three phases of, mind, of mindfulness of breathing, the emphasis throughout is on samatha or samadhi, calming the mind or concentration. And now we come to the fourth aspect of mindfulness of breathing, which is called the contemplation of phenomena or dhammas. Okay, when we come to the fourth tetrad in mindfulness of breathing, we come to the full and exclusive insight meditation or vipassana bhavana. In the first three tetrads, the emphasis is on samatha, samadhi. Though also those tetrads can also be used as a kind of preparation or foundation for insight. But with this fourth tetrad, the entire emphasis is on vipassana, on insight. And here the meditator takes the process of breathing, in and out breathing, and attends to it in a different way than he did in order to gain concentration. In order, when one uses the in and out breathing as a vehicle of insight, 
one is not trying just to focus and calm the mind on the in and out breaths, but rather one is observing or contemplating the process of breathing as a means of gaining insight into the real nature of phenomena, into the true nature of phenomena. And so one will begin with the ob observing the body in the process of breathing. And one sees that in any breath the characteristic of impermanence is manifesting itself. I'm taking an in-breath now that when that in-breath comes to an end there's no more in-breathing. That in-breath is finished. Now an out-breath is taking place. When I finish that out-breath then that out-breath is gone and over. Then there comes another in-breath, another out-breath. Each in and out breath comes and goes, it's impermanent. As the concentration deepens within even a single in-breath, one notices many, many little phases or segments. Each one comes into being and passes away, comes in and passes. And then as the attention goes down even to the microscopic level, one will experience, it seems like, almost like a series of infinitesimal little point instants of in-breathing arising and passing, arising and passing. And so also with the out-breath, always this arising and passing arising and passing. And also, as one is breathing in and out, the mind is aware of the in and out breaths. And one notices that those states of mind, just like the breaths themselves, are constantly arising and passing away. And so one sees that both the body in the breathing process and the mind that's aware of the breathing process are both arising and passing. This is the characteristic of impermanence, so contemplating impermanence. Then the next two are really just different aspects or angles of impermanence. The second is viraga which normally it means dispassion, the absence of lust. But here viraga has a different meaning. It means, literally viraga means fading out. 
color has disappeared. And so here, the contemplation fixes on the aspect of disappearance, not so much on the aspect simply of impermanence, but disappearance, that the previous in-breath has disappeared, the previous out-breath has disappeared. And as one is observing at this microscopic level from moment to moment, one sees that all these sankharas that make up the in-breath and out-breath, each one is disappearing, disappearing, disappearing. And then the third contemplation fixes on the aspect of cessation. That is, one notices with the in-breath that the in-breath has seized and gone. The out-breath has seized and gone. At the microscopic level, each little point instant of in-breath and out-breath has seized and gone, seized and gone. Each state of mind observing the in-breath seized and gone. Each state of mind observing the out-breath out-breath, out seized and gone. And so one is fixing here on this aspect cessation, 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 until it seems that the entire world of one's five aggregates is just this process of cessation from moment to moment seizing, seizing dissolving and perishing. And then the fourth aspect is called relinquishment, patinisaga. That means giving up or abandoning. And that is as one goes on contemplating these formations, always breaking up and dissolving and passing away, then one relinquishes all attachment to them. With each in-breath, one relinquishes attachment to everything. With each out-breath, relinquishes attachment to everything. And thus the Buddha completes the explanation of Anapanasati in its 16 aspects. <coughs> And then he says to Rahula, to conclude the sutta, he says, Rahula, that is how mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated so that it is of great fruit and great benefit. But he's not quite finished yet. He adds one final benefit to the practice of Anapanasati. He says, when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated in this way, even the final in-breaths and out-breaths, that is, even at the time of death, when one is dying and passing away, the final in-breaths and out-breaths are known as they cease, not unknown. 
That is, as one is dying, one will be aware of in and out breathing. But in order to have that benefit, one really has to <laughs> have a very good degree of mastery over anapanasati during the course of one's life. And the Buddha in this sutta, he doesn't bring the practice of anapanasati further by showing how the practice of anapanasati can lead to the enlightenment factors and to final liberation. Why doesn't he do this? Why not? He's not yet mature enough for that. In the Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha explains the 16 steps and then he shows how the 16 steps of Anapanasati lead to the emergence of the seven enlightenment factors, the Bojangas, and how the seven enlightenment factors lead to enlightenment and liberation. But now Rahula is not yet really a ripe fruit, and so if he gives that teaching, it would just go to waste. But later he will give Rahula some instructions which will bring him to, to our Arhatshya. Okay, that will conclude the explanation of the Sutta, even though we're a little late because I wanted to finish. But are there any questions on the Sutta, either what's covered today or anything covered last, last time? practicing can reach the final goal of enlightenment right here and now, those will be very few. <laughs> but this is a, you say, it's a, a long path, a long process, which to the extent that one practices will bring its fruits and its benefits, benefits which can be experienced right here and now. And also, as one goes on practicing, one will become, will, one will become, one will approach closer and closer to the final goal. So it might not be possible to reach the final goal within a very short period of time, 
even within this very life itself. But if one practices with sincerity and earnestness, then to the extent that one practices, one's defilements will gradually become weakened. The factors that make for awakening will gradually become strengthened. And these factors or this process of development will carry over from one existence to another until one, <laughs> through practice, even over several lives, many lives, eventually when all the factors are mature, then one will reach the final goal. But the, I would say that the important thing to know is that the fruits of the practice are visible right here and now, even though one might not reach the final goal until a long time to come. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.